Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey there, friends. Glad to have you join us for this podcast. This is the No Water Methodist podcast, and I'm Pastor Jeffrey Rickman. Not a lot to say before this one. This is, once again, our uh, Sunday morning um, time in the Word, and once again, we're following the Revised Common Lectionary, which is, of course, uh, for readings that were prearranged long ago, uh, but I, I find it uh, a better exercise for me personally and for the church to continue sampling different books of the Bible rather than um, just staying on my hobby horse. And of course, it's a challenge sometimes to figure out themes to take between all four readings. Um, You know, I never know exactly how my sermons are going to be received. I don't really do any intentional manipulation saying, oh, this is how I need to make people feel, and this is what they need to experience at this point. Uh, It's a much more Uh, raw reflection on whatever text we're encountering. I usually have sat down with my eldest daughter at this point um, several times of the week and and helped her read through and understand basics of each reading. Um, So I do some thinking before Sunday morning, but I I try to make sure that that I'm rooted in the Word and can speak on it with or without preparation. And for several years now, I've done very little preparation And sometimes people don't get much out of it. Other times, like this last Sunday, I I hear back from several people saying that they really enjoyed my sermon. And I just thought that was really odd because I was feeling sick and miserable, had a sinus infection. And yet, you know, I I believe the Lord spoke through me. Um, I believe he does that regularly, not just through me, but through all people who um, have his Holy Spirit. And that's what I think preaching is an exercise in, is meditating on God's word uh, with the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and among us. The The primary theme for this day was the theme of God having a plan and being in control of history and nothing being able to separate us from God's love or God's protection and provision for us. And so this begins with a reading from Genesis where um, Abram, makes a covenant with the Lord, and he has this amazing, terrifying nighttime vision and has a bunch of animals chopped up and some some supernatural things happen. And, of course, the promise of land and progeny. And then we extend that to the psalm, where the psalm is a, a prolonged confession of confidence in God's provision, even amidst all of our enemies. And And so we talked a bit about what it means to have enemies and why we have enemies and the fact that all Christians, including Christ himself, have enemies. And um, then, you know, this turned into a a conversation about how it is that we live differently from the world, why it is that that they take offense at us. And so the Philippians reading reading talks about those whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, It's talking about the bad guys and how it is that we are different from them. I use the metaphor of zombies a bit, and some of our older ladies did not like that, but they forgave me. 
And then the final reading is uh, from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is just talking about how he is not afraid of Herod because Herod cannot do anything to interrupt God's plans. So there's a final exhortation for us just to be confident and not fearful. We live in a very fearful world, and, and Christians really shouldn't be afraid and anxious as other people's are. So I hope this all sounds like truth to you. If it doesn't, I don't think it's because it's not true. I think it's just because our hearts need correcting and um, the Bible tells us at several points not to be worried and to trust in the, the Lord. That's that's kind of the definition of faith. And so uh, my prayer for you as you attend upon the word with me is, is that you are freed from the anxiety that you're carrying and that you're once again established on the, the rock that shall not be moved. So God bless you in this time. And um, I just appreciate your prayers for me personally as I try to lead a a congregation in a a fraught political and uh, uh, denominational environment, but um, also just pray for the church here. She's trying to do God's work in an ungodly time and place, and that always requires prayer. So thank you for that. Okay, God bless you. So this theme uh, noted in this Lenten prayer that, that God guided the people of the Israelites through the wilderness and brought them through the, to the promised land, uh, that we too are being guided through this strange land to a, a promised land. Um, we have four readings today. The first one beginning in Genesis following Abram. Abram is the name that Abraham went by until he was renamed by God um, when he was almost 100 years old. Um, a, a, a review of Abram's life is he lived most of it in Ur, not the promised land. And then whenever his wife was already postmenopausal, whenever he was already in his 80s, God called him out of Ur to the promised land, did not rename him at that point. He already went through many chapters with the Lord before God ever gave him his name, Father of Many Nations, which was almost seemed like a cruel joke because Abram and Sarai never had any children. Excuse me. <coughs> up till that point. And then according to the laws of nature, they could not have children. Abram went to the promised land just faithfully obeying God. And then uh, God made a covenant with him, and we're going to hear the story of God making a covenant with him. But that's after walking faithfully alongside God for many years. What else is helpful to talk about this? I'll think of it once we're already doing the reading. But let's go ahead and do our first reading from Genesis, and then we'll talk more about it. It's still a good morning. Our first reading is from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, which you can find on page 19 in your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, What wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Elizer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven and tell the stars, 
if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years, and a goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passes between these pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is quite a story. A lot of supernatural things happen throughout the Bible. This is one of them. It's one of the weirder ones in my mind. I don't know. For some reason it sticks out to me more because it, the climax, if you didn't get it, there's uh, a heifer, a ram, a goat, and two birds. And he chops the three big ones in half. And I don't know if he leans them against each other or if they just stand opposite each other. doesn't really much matter. I just I get lost in the logistics of it. But there's kind of like a tunnel between them and a smoking pot and a lamp come out of nowhere and float through the middle of them. And that's what ratifies this covenant between Abram and God. And the, the covenant is, you know, if Abram follows faithfully as he has so far, God will bless him with property and progeny. Uh, a lot of land, a lot of descendants. And it's a good deal, but according to the laws of nature, it cannot happen because his wife is beyond childbearing years. And even though men can technically reproduce, it's not always safe later in, in life. That's just a practical thing to know, I guess. Um, or not. Maybe I didn't need to talk about it. But anyway, it doesn't seem very practical, but here's the blessing that God offers, and does Abraham believe it or not? It says, Abraham, Abram believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And that, that phrase right there is quoted by St. Paul in the letter to the Romans saying, you and I are children of Abraham because you and I likewise have faith in God. We choose to believe even when it doesn't make sense, when we don't see how it could be true. Now, Abraham was uh, a man of the covenant. God made a covenant with him. Has God also made a covenant with us? The new covenant through Christ Jesus. And that was also ratified through the blood of a sacrifice, Jesus, on the cross. And that's why we have a cross 
at the center of our worship space. That's why you see Christian crosses everywhere. It's a reminder that Christ himself made a new covenant with us, a covenant of love, a covenant of mercy, and he has given us a blessing that is even greater than the blessings given Abraham. So are we, you know, Abraham was promised progeny and property. So is that the pro, is that the promise of the new covenant that we have? Just more, pro, more progeny, more property? Is that the nature of our covenant? Okay, yeah, y'all heard me preach enough against prosperity gospel. You know that, that at least I do not believe just because you're in a covenant with God, that doesn't mean he's going to make you rich, doesn't mean that he's going to give you lots of kids, pretty wife, nice house, nice car, lots of friends. None of these things are measures of one's faith. None of these things are are reflections of God's affection towards you. Okay, if not that, then what are the promises of the new covenant? What are we promised? Salvation. The very basic, okay? So when, when you salvage something, what do you do? You find something that's in the junk heap, and you, you give it new life, right? If you think of a car that's been junked, when you salvage a car, you bring it back and restore it, Right? And that's what God does with us. He finds us on the junk heap of humanity, and he restores us into really nice hot rods. You know, y'all are good, good bunch of hot rods here, folks. You know, if you like that metaphor, hold on to it. If you don't, just throw it out. But God, God does this salvific work, uh, restores us to what end? Someone say heaven. The kingdom of God. Go ahead. Everlasting life. Very good. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, God makes us worthy of his kingdom. You know, a, a, a most blessed existence. You know, y'all ever heard of um, the phrase, your best life now? Everybody's heard that. Man, y'all have stayed as clear of prosperity gospel as I did for a long time. What's the name of the big prosperity gospel preacher? I forget his name. With the, Joel Osteen. He published a book called Your Best Life Now, where it's talking about this prosperity gospel and how God is going to bless you with all this stuff. And one of my favorite preachers, his name is Vody Bauckham. He's a real deal. But he says, the only way to have your best life now is if you're going to hell when you die. Zing. <laughs> the only way to have your best life right now is if you're going to hell when you die. Because the reality is that God has prepared a place for you in a most blessed place that cannot compete with this. You know, This is just a pale reflection of, of the best life that we will have in our future. And that's what gives us the strength to suffer today. You know? So part of the salvation promise is being welcome in his kingdom. The other part that Paul's going to talk about today is saving our bodies. Who here has a body that sometimes is just miserable? Oh, I had the worst week this week. Oh, I hated my body. I'm so gross, guys. God is going to save me. He's going to bring life to my mortal body, and it's going to be make like Jesus' body, and it's going to be so wonderful. You know, so when we're talking about these promises, bringing life to my mortal body, preparing a place for me in God's kingdom, what's better, the, the covenant that God made with Abram or the covenant God made with me and you? What do you think? Yeah, no contest. No contest. So, so here and now, our, our job is not to accrue wealth and hoard stuff and have wars and fight. Our job is to faithfully submit and obey God for the rest of our lives, trusting that he's on the other side of death and will make everything right that has been made wrong and restore everything that's been broken. Can you believe that? It's a hard thing to believe. It's a simple thing to believe. 
And you and I, I mean, that's if you don't believe that, that's the touchstone of faith. If you don't believe that, you're going to be trying to have your best life now, and it's not going to happen. So if, if you hold on to one thing today, hold on to that one, because I'm losing clarity. I might not say anything else intelligible today. Um, the, the only other thing, you know, no, I don't want to touch the, on the nitty-gritty stuff of Genesis. Let's just let's keep this notion of covenant in mind. We're going to talk about, we've already talked about nature being something that threatens to limit God's promises, right? Nature threatened to limit God's promises to Abram. His promise was progeny, and it just couldn't happen. He was a stranger in a strange land, and he's saying, you're going to take over this land. It seemed very unlikely God did it. But it's not always nature that stands in the way. Sometimes it's enemies. Sometimes it's other people. And so we're going to talk about that with the psalm coming up. Let's go to page 758 in your hymnals. This is Psalm 27. As I said, this is a, a precursor to a conversation about the role of enemies in God's promises to us. So here's what the song response sounds like. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. All right, sing that with me once, and then we're going to do the reading. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes shall stumble and fall. One thing I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. Lord will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, will conceal me under the cover of his tent, and will set me high upon a rock. when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, for you have been my help. Light do we see light. 
Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. For with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. Complimented Cody on his voice and then didn't invite him up to help with the psalm. I'm sorry, brother, but anyway, you did a good job from there. All right, so I said we'd talk about enemies. Um, verse 2. When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, isn't that a great image? Makes me think of zombies, right? When evildoers assemble, assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes shall stumble and fall. Though a host encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet will I be confident. Why? Because God is on my side. There's a quote gets passed around on Facebook. Uh, it gives me great comfort to know that when God planned my salvation, he factored in my own stupidity. But one of the other things that God factors in is my enemies. There is nothing that my enemies can do to interrupt or disrupt or cancel God's plans for me. They are powerless to do that. They might hate me. They might rail against me. They might speak against me. They might even kill me. They cannot hurt me. And for a lot of people, they don't understand. They might go, well, you just said they can kill you. They can't hurt you. Jesus said, do not fear those who can destroy the body and do no else. Fear only him that can destroy your body and cast your soul into hell. And that's the Lord. When we looked at that last reading, whenever Abram encountered the Lord in that, that, that vision at night, remember he, he chased away the birds that were trying to come eat the sacrifice, and then he fell into a deep sleep, and the darkness of the Lord fell upon him, and it was a horror to him, it said. H-O-R-R-O-R. -R -R. That is not ever experienced by anyone as a good thing. Horror is a terrifying thing. The horror of the Lord fell upon him, and it was in that that he was blessed, right? It was in the midst of that horror that God poured out his blessings upon him. That just seems like a, a crazy contradiction to most people. But death is a horrifying thing, is it not? Nobody here is excited to die, are you? And if you are, we need to talk after worship. We need to have a conversation. Jesus himself was not excited to die. He didn't want to die. He prayed to the Father that the cup might pass. However, when the time came, he was willing. He didn't shrink away from his duty. Now, that's the relationship you and I have. We're not excited to die. But when the time comes, we trust in the Lord. Amen? Amen? And we know, as the psalmist knew, there is nothing our enemies can do to us that can take us from God. We just said, I, I just asked you, is there anything that can separate us from the love of God? And you all said so confidently, no. And we say that, we say that once a month at least here at this church. And then how often do we feel fear in our heart that, oh, this thing might disrupt my life. My life might be wrong because of this whether it be money, whether it be marriage, whether it be work, whether it be friends, whether it be family, whether there are all kinds of things we let us get, you know, you turn on the news and they want you spun up about 
uh, Ukraine war and nuclear powers fighting. They want to spun up about all kinds of things. How many things are we asked to get anxious about on a daily basis? What happens if we just say, you know what? Nothing can interrupt God's plans for me, and I'm in his hand. I have nothing to fear. What happens then? We're those crazy holder rollers. We're cult members. We're not scared of the same things everybody else is scared of. Let me change the subject, but not really. Historically, do you know what happens whenever a bunch of foreigners come into a new area? It's this phenomenon sociologists call xenophobia. Happens every single time. People of a different culture who look and talk different with other loyalties, they come into our midst. There is distrust, there is fear, there's paranoia, and the social fabric kind of comes apart. We act like we're like uniquely racist. Today we're not. We're actually like the least racist society there's ever been historically. If you don't think that's true, there have been international studies on this. I'm not saying there is no racism in America. There is. But we are an extremely tolerant nation. It helps that we're built on immigrants, that we have had wave after wave of immigrants. But when you look at the role that immigrants play socially, any time that there's an influx of immigration, societal trust, even among people who lived there before, drops. That's the role that aliens have in a social environment. That's the role that Abram played in his environment. I'm taking it back to Abram now. Abram was a stranger in a strange land with much wealth who actually even went to war against local kings and, and won big victories, okay? Locals received him just barely with fear and intimidation, and he was asked to move along sometimes. He was not well received in the Holy Land. He had many enemies, okay? So Abram was limited not just by nature. He was limited by enemies around him. There were a lot of people that didn't want to see him succeed. A lot of big powers aligned against him. Even so, did Abram succeed? Why? Because God was with him. More importantly, because he was with God. Now, likewise, in your and my lives, we, even though we might have been born in America, even though I might have a social security card and my citizenship here is technically here, as the next reading is going to say, our conversation, our citizenship is actually not in this world. It's in heaven. We are strangers in a strange land. I am a poor wayfaring stranger. I'm traveling through this world of woe. But there's no sickness, toil, or danger in that bright land to which I go. I'd sing the rest of that, but it goes up high and my throat's hurting. <laughs> but the notion is you and I are immigrants. We are aliens. We are strangers in a strange land. And when people perceive that, we will have enemies here on earth. We Christians should have enemies. And that's why Jesus tells us to pray for enemies. It's not a sin to have enemies. Enemies are evidence that you're doing something right because you're standing for something. Did Jesus have enemies? Absolutely. That's how you get killed on a cross, friends. And when you live like Jesus, when you live for Jesus, you will have enemies. They are worldlians. They are people of this world. And they are akin to those zombies. Okay, they were talking about flesh eaters a second ago. I know some of you ladies don't like zombies. I don't like them either. But it's a great metaphor because the thing about zombies is they're undead. They have bodies, but they're not alive. They have hearts, but they're not beating, okay? They resemble living people, but they are not alive. They're the walking dead. And that's how people are without Jesus. We're going out into the day of the living dead out there. 
That's the world we were born into. And then Christ reached into each of our hearts and made us alive. But we should live differently than the dead people. Don't you think? Don't you think alive people should resemble something different from the cadavers? Now, do we hate the cadavers? No. We love the cadavers. We want life for the cadavers. But you and I can't bring life to cadavers. It's only the Holy Spirit that can do that. And we sure as heck can't pretend like there's no difference between us and the cadavers. That's ridiculous. That shows no discernment whatsoever. There is a difference. Christ makes a huge difference in our lives. We live differently. We talk differently. We speak differently. We have different customs, different cultures. It's ridiculous to imagine that we should fit in fine with the world. It's a different culture. They have a citizenship here. We have a citizenship in heaven. And that means they're going to take offense to us. As we become more and more like Jesus, family members and friends are going to say, what, you're all high and mighty now? You think you're just holier than now? I know you. I know you from your sinner days. You'll never be anything but that. If you've ever come out of addiction, you know that's the voice of the evil one right there. Sin is like addiction. Christ takes it from us. And we're given a new life. And then most people of the world don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. They go, la, 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 la. They will stop being friends with you. They will hate you. They will speak evil against you. They will root for you to fail. And when you do, they will rejoice. Do not put your hope or your trust in people. Do not put your hope or in trust in the cultures of this world. Love them. Pray for them. But live different from them. I get so concerned whenever I see Christians that really can't discern the difference between walking in Christ and walking in the world. The two could not be more opposite. And if you haven't seen it, you haven't been paying attention. Pray for discernment. Anyway, I got a little off in there. Let's center, recenter in the message. Enemies can't, can't threaten us. People will align against us. People will take offense to us. If we're in Christ, they cannot harm us. Can we say amen to that? Amen. All right, then we can move on. Uh, do we have Sarah Beth with us? Yeah. Oh, great. You're just sitting right there. That's lovely. Okay. Let's, um, well, we don't need you because it's time for our third reading. Um, the Philippians reading we're going to talk about, when it says conversation, it means citizenship. It's just an older, it's an older form of uh, translation. So let's hear our third reading. Our third reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1 which you can find on page 1657 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. The word of the Lord. So we were just talking about the difference between the worldly way of life and the heavenly way of life. And here, it gives us a depiction of the worldly way, okay? So starting in verse 18, he says, 
For many walk, and that means live. For many live, of whom I have told you often, and now I tell you even with weeping, okay? That's a sad thing, right? He is not happy about this. He's about to talk to us about the zombies, all right? That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Does that sound good? No, they're, they're, they're going to be destroyed. Whose God is their belly. Okay, so that's pretty important there. What do you think that means? When we think of the belly, what do we think about? Food, hunger, desire to eat. The, historically, ancient cultures understood the belly to be the source of desire, passion, uh, yearning, hunger. Okay, that's the source of those things. So the notion of worldly people is they look at life as a series of desires to be fulfilled. So whether the desires be for food or for sex or for power or for security, all of that's located in the belly. These are bodily desires, natural bodily desires. We're called to be supernatural. You understand? Natural and supernatural are not the same thing. We're called to sublimate our animal nature and raise the divine nature, okay? So worldly people have no notion of the divine. They have only the animal, the gut, all right? Do your guts have brains? No, they have intestines. They're terrible brains, okay? So we are not governed by our stomach. Our, our stomachs have uh, bad stuff for brains. We're governed by our hearts and our heads together. There's a wonderful synthesis. Anyway, these people in destruction, their God is a belly whose glory is in their shame, okay? So, have you ever met anyone who just has no shame? They've forgotten how to blush. Um, I would argue that we have an entire culture that is infatuated with that way of life. That is the way of worldliness. It leads to destruction. We should be the opposite of that. That means shame is a good thing. And I've got a whole sermon on that I need to give sometime. Shame, guilt, fear, all of these emotions were designed by God to warn us away from bad things, okay? So the point in life is not to just never feel those things. The point in life is to feel those things and then run from them, okay? When something causes shame, that's because you shouldn't do it, okay? When something causes guilt, that's because you shouldn't have done it. Don't do it anymore, okay? When you've forgotten how to feel shame, you're lost. And when your life is trying to justify those things that, the, that Jesus says you should be ashamed about, you're, you're done. So he... He says in the beginning, look at me, follow me. And we, we live in a culture today where that's like a, a, a boast, boasting, you know, bragging. That's not okay. Oh, look at Paul. He's so full of it. Well, if you become, uh, you decide you want to be a, uh, a carpenter. Well, to start, you have to study under a master craftsman, right? You don't just get to start your own practice, right? You're like a, an apprentice, right? An apprentice has a master and you have to look. And if you're making a cut wrong and your master says, Hey, stop doing that. Look at me and how I'm doing it. Is he just being so so boastful and just bad? No. That's the only way you're going to learn. And that's what the Christian faith is like. We need examples to follow. We need to be able to look at people and go, oh, man, Mary, she really knows what she's doing. I'm going to watch how she deals with this stuff, and I'm going to model my life off of that and see how it fits the Bible because I really just— you don't read the Bible and just magically know how to live your life. You have to see it applied. Okay, and so that's why he's saying, look at me, follow me. And then he says, look at the bad guys. See how they live? See how the zombies live? Don't be like them. Be like me and my people. Because our citizenship is in heaven, and God is going to save our vile bodies. Did you catch that? So 
the, the promise of the psalm that I didn't talk about is, I know that the Lord will make me worthy to live in his temple alongside him forever. So that's part of salvation. The other part is he's going to redeem my vile body. Both of these things together. We will be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able, able to subdue all things to himself. God is able. My enemies can't take it from me. Nature can't take it from me. It's mine. And I am at comfort in Christ. That's what he's offering here. So therefore, stand firm. Stand fast in the Lord. That's the scriptural exhortation. If you have faith, you've already have it, hold on to it, stand firm. If you don't have faith, pray for it. The Lord will send it. That's pretty simple, right? Okay, let's... um. Okay, it's noon already, so I'm going to do the gospel reading, and then we're going to close singing My Hope is Built. We're going to skip My Hope is Built for right now. We're going to come back and sing it. All right, so the gospel reading is from the gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. You can find it on page 1460 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Yes, I want you to read. Thank you, Sarah Beth. Golly. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. This last bit that he just said, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's a scriptural reference to Psalm 118 when it's talking about the Messiah coming on the day of judgment. So this is a threat. He's saying, you're going to see me as long as I'm around and that's not up to you, that's up to God. And when you see me again, it's going to be too late for you. You're toast. Okay, that's pretty much what he's saying here. It's, it's, a, it's not so veiled threat if Herod knows the scriptures. So this begins with Herod making a threat about him, a threat towards him, saying, I'm going to kill you if you don't get out of here. And is Jesus intimidated by this? No. He says, you go tell that fox. That's fighting words. You go tell that fox, I'm going to keep exercising demons, I'm going to keep healing for a couple days, then I'm going to move along when I want, okay? That's pretty much what he says here. I know I just put it in, like, hick terms, but that's pretty much what he says here because he's not afraid of Herod. Why? Connected to what we've been talking about. Why is he not afraid of a, a, an enemy threatening him? He's in God. He's with God. There is nothing to fear. His enemies cannot do anything to him. God has a plan. Herod can't interrupt it. Herod is the most important, powerful guy in the region. He cannot do anything to Jesus that the Lord has not already ordained. He cannot harm Jesus. So Jesus is not at all intimidated. He's not at all Upset about this, you know, he, when he's saying, you go tell that fox, he's not, you go tell that fox, he just, you go tell that fox. 
I'm not afraid of him. I'm going to do what I want, when I want. Then I'm going to move along, and I know the Lord's plan is that I am going to die in Jerusalem. And I'm going to go do that, because that's the plan. So he's not at all intimidated. And then he has this interesting discourse. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's sad in tone. How often have I wanted to care for you as a hen protects her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. Look, your city is now left to you desolate. He condemns this whole city. And really what he's condemning is all the people of the world whom he has invited to be in his embrace and who have rejected him. Christians throughout all the years of our faith, you know, sometimes the notion of hell is that God is like angry and he just punishes everybody that he doesn't like and he sends them to hell. Other times the portrait is God loves everybody and he wants everybody's salvation. But when they reject him, he lets them go. And hell is where God is not. It is a place of sorrow and suffering. And if somebody rejects the love of Jesus, fine. You have what you want. And what they want is hell. That's why zombie movies are always tragic. <laughs> what they want is hell. You know? And what people who don't love Jesus and don't follow Jesus want is hell. And that seems to be the attitude here. Jerusalem, I would have saved you. I would have taken care of you. I don't... I don't hate you, I, I would have let, but you chose not to be with me, and I'm going to let you make that choice, and destruction is your end because your God is the belly. That's what is still unfolding before our eyes even today. Day by day, Christ is making his case through the church to a world that is going, la, 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 I do not want to hear. Don't want to hear about that other way of life. Don't want to hear about the purpose of life. I want to believe that my best life is now, and you only live once, and I got to live by my bucket list and do all the things that I want before I'm too old and I die because then it's over. That's, that's how people want to live, and that is uh, an affront to Jesus. That is no way for anyone to live. True abundant life has been extended to all men, and we've been given this time to offer it to everybody. And not all the zombies are going to wake up. In fact, I don't think most of them are. But God is going to wake a lot of them up. And are we going to be there when it happens? Are we going to be issuing the words of invitation and comfort? Are we going to have the courage to live boldly, not fearing our enemies, but trusting that God is in control and his plan will prevail? Church, will you believe in God? Church, will you trust his plan? These are easy softball questions. Church, will you trust God's plan? Church, will you live boldly? Church, are you going to fear your enemies? Church, are you going to love your enemies? Church, when you leave this place, are you going to minister to the zombies? That was a harder one, I know. And some of you are still shaking your heads at me going, stop with the zombies, okay? I'm not going to talk about zombies next week. But if you didn't like it, let it bother you some more. I know we love zombies. We don't want to look at them as zombies. But unless you learn to look at him that way, you're not going to feel the gravity, the, the, intense, the intensity you need to feel at, at, at praying for God's salvation for them. If you don't see something as broke, you're never going to fix it. And this world's broken. And it needs healers, peacemakers. And that's what God has raised us up to be. Amen? Let's stand.